Do you ever wonder why Jesus comes to earth and dies? I suspect that we probably, our first response is the same as one of the verses in the hymn we just sang. In the third verse, it says, The Lord for us the cross endured to save our souls from death and hell. That's true. Jesus comes to the earth and dies so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. But is that all Jesus comes to do? Is that the extent of the coming of Christ into this world and ultimately to the cross? When I read the scriptures, it seems to me that while that is certainly a huge part of it, I think what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus comes and dies to forgive our sins so that not just we have eternal life, but so that we have relationship with our creator, our father. And in that relationship with our father, we have abundant life. We, have a, we can live a life of joy and blessing, and, and we can live a life that is what he created us to experience, a life of intimacy with our Father, a life of the fullness of all of God's blessing poured out upon us. And I am convinced that that is why Jesus comes and dies, to forgive us so that we can know this kind of full-orbed blessing of intimacy with God. And as the time draws near for Jesus to go to the cross, he starts making it a little more obvious, the pathway to that blessing. What he's going to do, how he is going to act, what he is thinking about restoring relationship with our Father. And so he has this conversation with his disciples. And he says to them, Son of man, that's me, is going to suffer and die. And Peter takes, pulls Jesus aside and says to him, Jesus, stop talking like that. After all, I just said to everybody who heard me, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you are the Messiah. You're the Anointed One. You're the one we've been waiting for. And the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, doesn't suffer and die. The Son of God raises up in power. The Son of God crushes His enemies. The Son of God does this, does not sacrifice Himself. That's not how you do it. And Jesus looks back at Peter and says, you're exactly right, Peter. What was I thinking? I am the Son of God. I'm the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. You're right. I've got all the power of the, in existence in my hands. And, and I can win with power. I can win by crushing my enemies. That's why I'm here. Thank you. I, I don't know what, I, what came through my mind. I don't know what happened to me. I lost it. Thank you, Peter. Obviously, he doesn't say that. He doesn't really even address Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because you are thinking that the kingdom is rooted in, in the ideas of human beings. 
that the kingdom is rooted in the mind of God. And it's not the same thing. And then he says to them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to think like God thinks. You have to think like I think. You have to do what I do. And he gives them this, this, in verse 34, he gives them this little image of, of what discipleship looks like. And he says three things. He says, first of all, you have to deny yourself. You have to give up your own rights. We do not like giving up our rights, do we? We like hanging on to our rights. We like reaching for our rights. We like grasping for our rights, but not giving up our rights. And yet, Paul says about Jesus that he gave up his rights. He had the right to do, to, he is the, his God. He had the right to grasp all of the power in existence, and he chooses not to. He gives up his rights. Let's go. And he says, my disciples look like that. My disciples give up their rights. My disciples decide that, that the rights of other people are more important than our rights. My disciples are more concerned about how other people are treated than how we are treated. I read an article a few months ago. It's one of those articles that the title grabs your attention and you think, I think I need to read this. And the title of the article was, I'm offended by easily offended Christians. I thought, I better read that article. That sounds interesting to me. And, And the point of the article really was, Christians have a reputation for being easily offended. When people say something that we don't like, We let them know we're offended by that. When people do things that we disagree with, we let them know we're offended by that. And we have this reputation, particularly in in Western culture, of being easily offended. And the point of the article is, that doesn't really look like Jesus. Nobody could have been more easily offended than Jesus is, and yet Jesus never seems to be offended. And he says, what if, what if when people thought about Christians, what came to their mind was, you know, you can't get those Christians upset about anything unless it's about how many children are going to bed hungry or about racism or, or about the most vulnerable people in our society or about the needs of so many people around the world who live in war and violence and poverty and drought and famine. But you, if you say stuff to them about them, you just cannot get them upset about that. As I read that article, I thought to myself how many times I have reacted being easily offended by things that I didn't like. Things that I disagree with. And quite frankly, how seldom I'm really offended by, by the struggles and the burdens so many people in our world. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up your rights. Think more about others than about yourself. But he also says you have to take up your cross. Take up our cross, I think, is to do what Jesus does when he goes to the cross. And that is to take upon himself the sins of the world. Take upon himself the pain and the agony of the world. Take upon himself all of 
all of the ugliness and the evil of our world. It all rests on Him. No wonder He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are people who interpret Jesus' words as the Father really did turn His back on Jesus. That He just couldn't take it. He couldn't stand looking at Jesus with all of that sin on Him and He turned away. But I don't think God ever turns away from anyone. But I think it felt like God did. I think Jesus had upon himself all of the shame and the guilt of the sins of the world. He'd never experienced that before. You know how it is when you do something you know you shouldn't do. And that feeling of guilt and shame and remorse rises up within you. And it begins to churn in your stomach. And you feel so embarrassed and ashamed. What are you thinking that God is thinking about you in that moment? Multiply that a zillion times and that's how Jesus feels. And the call of the disciples of Jesus is to be willing to take upon ourselves the pain and the evil and the sin of the world because so it will relieve it from other people. To step into the gap, to step into the places where we really don't want to go because it's messy and it's hard and it hurts and it's painful. And if we didn't do that, our lives would be so much easier, so much simpler. But the call of the gospel is to be willing to step in and to take whatever we can off of the shoulders of others and put them on ourselves. Now, we're not really doing what Jesus does, but in a sense, we are. I mean, we are agents of Christ in this world. And our calling is is to do what Christ has done for people. To be agents of grace and healing and mercy. Not that we do it. It's not our grace and it's not our healing. It's God's. But we are agents of His grace and agents of His healing. And that's what disciples do. We willingly step in to the messiness of other people's lives just as others have stepped into the messiness of our lives. And we are to follow Jesus. I mean, it sort of makes sense that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you follow Jesus. And yet think how many times we go our own way. How many times God has laid a path out before us, but it's it feels dangerous, it feels uncertain. It feels like that's really going to be painful and burdensome. I think we'll take this path instead. But to follow Jesus is to walk where Jesus walks, to run where Jesus runs, to stay where Jesus stays, to say what Jesus says. It it is about doing whatever Jesus calls us, leads us to do. That is following Jesus. And it's doing it not as Not as sort of a last resort, but as our first option. We often teach uh, people how to pray and say to them, look, express your heart's desire to God. And then we add, but add an ending onto that, uh, your will be done. And that's not a bad thing to pray that. Jesus prays that. But often it feels like what we're really saying is, God, I want you to do this. But if you're not going to do that, then I guess I'll do what you want me to do. It's not my first choice, and I don't know that it's really best, but if, that, if I'm not going to get my first choice, I'll take your will that's second choice. And we almost are saying to God, 
I think I understand this one better than you do. And we sort of approach following Jesus that way. We say, okay, this path, we have so many paths that have been blocked that we want to go. Finally, we're like, all right, fine. I'll follow you. Rather, it becomes our first choice. It becomes our heart's desire. And we don't always get it right, but it's our heart's desire. And we, we begin to understand that, that following might actually be better than leading. In our culture, we're always trying to move toward leadership, always trying to move toward leading things. And there's nothing wrong with leading. It's a spiritual gift, and, and, and people who, we need people who lead. But there's something sort of under the surface of our culture that says, you're really not that valuable if you're not leading. In fact, I've often heard people say, well, you know, I'm just a follower. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Jesus doesn't ever say, he doesn't say, if you want to be my disciple, you lead. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you follow. As Mark Galley says in, a, in an article I read, that he says, you know, maybe what we need are less, less seminars about seven traits of highly effective leaders. And instead, maybe we need seminars of seven traits of humble followers. And again, we need leaders. There are people who have gifts of leadership, but the reality is all of us, every single one of us are called to be followers. John 21 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The story of Jesus post-resurrection. He's on the beach. He's cooking fish on a grill there. And the disciples come in and he feeds them. And they have this conversation. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Of course I love you. Feed my sheep. And they go through that three times. And, and then Jesus says to Peter, I just want to tell you something about your life. It's going to be hard. You're going to have a hard life. You're not going to go where you want to go. People are going to lead you. You're going to be, you're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to be, you're going to have a hard life. And Peter's trying to absorb all of this. And he, and he while well, he hears, he listens to Jesus, he turns around and he sees John. And he says, well, what about him? Classic human response, right? And Jesus, you almost see the smile forming on Jesus' face. He says, Peter, I, I, I'll take care of John. You just worry about yourself. You just follow me. And it reminds us that following Jesus looks different for you than it does for me. Following Jesus is going to look different in your life than in your life or your life. Because the pathway in which Jesus leads us is our journey. He's not asking us to follow someone else's path. He's asking us to follow the path he has laid out in front of us. And disciples of Jesus embrace that. And what he's really saying in all of this, all of this verse about denying yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He's really just talking about what the church, he's talking about the church being the church. God's people being God's people. This has been God's, God's design for his people from the very beginning. And the reason Adam and Eve sinned way back in the garden is because they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to deny themselves and ask to take up their cross and follow him. They wanted to go their own way, do their own thing, grab for their rights. And from that moment, God has sent person after person after person after person to try to help us understand 
what it means to be His children, what it means to follow Him, to keep turning us back to exactly what Jesus says here in this passage, because this is what it looks like to be God's people. This is not something for an elite group of people who say, well, this is for those who are extra special holy. You'll notice that Matthew makes it a point to say he's been talking to the disciples. At the beginning of verse 34, he says, Then Jesus said, he gathered all the people around him. He said, now listen, this is for all of you. Gather around, get closer. This is not just for the twelve. This is for everybody who's here. This is what it means to be my disciple. Everybody. And the reason for that is because Jesus wants every single one of us to know the joy of relationship with our Father. He wants every one of us to know the joy of living holy lives, of being filled with His Spirit. He wants every one of us to know abundant life. And this is the pathway to abundant life. Richard John Newhouse in his book, uh, Death on a Friday Friday Afternoon, says that there are not two pathways of discipleship. There's not the pathway of the cross and then the pathway of resurrection victory. And some people take the pathway of the cross and some people take the pathway of resurrection victory. The reality is the only way you get to resurrection victory is through the cross. Because the way of the cross is the way of life. And God's design for every one of us is to experience the way of life. And Jesus says, this is an eternal principle I'm talking about here. This is something that, that you, are, you will do for all of eternity. This is what the new heaven and new earth are going to look like. Every one of us in that life will live this way. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. That We will want nothing other than that. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. That's the way to life in Christ. One of the things that I noticed as I was looking at this passage was at the very beginning of Jesus' words here, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple. I hadn't thought about it much before, but what he's really saying is, if you want to be my disciple, this is how you live. This is how you think. This is how you act. And it's, it's people, he's talking to people who have a desire, a passion, a want to, to be a disciple of Jesus. And the word that he uses there, those who want this, it, it means passion, desire, yearning, but it also means it's connected to, to things that we are fond of. And, and he, it, it strikes me that what he's saying is people who do this are people who are fond of being a disciple of Jesus, who are fond of, who are interested in, who give themselves to being a disciple of Jesus. We all know that if we're fond of something, we will sacrifice to do it, whatever it may be. I, I learned the principle a long time ago that we all do what we want to do. Now, I know there are, there, are, there are things on our time that we don't have much of a, a choice about and on our money and on our energy and our possessions. But you think about all the time we have left. 
all the time that's our own, all the money that's our own, all our resources that's our own. Ultimately, we have to be honest and agree we do what we want to do with what we have. We do what's important to us. If it's important to us to do this, we will, we will sacrifice to do it. We'll sacrifice our money, our time, our energy, our resources, because it is important to us and we will do it. And the call of the gospel, the challenge of the cross, is do you want to do this? Is it something you are so enamored with, so interested in, so passionate about, that you're willing to live with the kind of heart that is open to God that says, I want to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus? I may not do, I mean, I may not be doing it very well, but that is the desire of my heart. John Ortberg says that there's a difference between a mentality of trying and a mentality of training. A mentality of trying is, is sort of that mindset of, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. It's like, you know, maybe those experiences you've had where you're, you're, somebody lays a plate of food in front of you that you've never seen before. And you're thinking, hmm, I don't know about this. And they keep convincing you, say, all right, fine, I'll give it a shot, I'll try it. When I was in Taiwan, I did that. I ate a fish eye and other kinds of things like that that I'd never eaten before. Give it a shot. You know, you try. And there are lots of things in life where that's okay. We live that way. I'll just give it a shot. I'll give give it a try. But there are also lots of things in life where that's just not enough. That's just not good enough. So if next Saturday you wake up and you open up the newspaper or the internet or however, listen to the news, and you discover that there is a marathon going on in Buffalo that afternoon, and you think to yourself, I have always been interested in running a marathon. I think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to. Where are my tennis shoes? I've not seen those things for months. They've got to be here somewhere. Where are those things? And you grab your tennis shoes and throw on a few old clothes and you head up to Buffalo. Or you're in the the doctor's office, you see a sign, they're hiring nurses. And you think, I've always wanted to be a nurse. I mean, I would always rather poke than be poked. So I'm going to do this. How hard can it be? Find a vein, pull out the blood, you know, stick a needle in someone's arm, right? And they say, I'd like to give it a shot. Or you love baked goods. And you decide, I'm going to open a bakery. I'm going, to, I'm, going to give, I'm going to take every bit of money I have and invest in opening a bakery, despite the fact that you have never in your life picked up a spatula or a rolling pin, and you don't, have never turned on a mixer, and you don't even know how your oven door opens. But you invest everything you have in starting a bakery. We would say, in each case, that's just foolishness. It's unreasonable. It's stupid. You need training to do those things. You need some, you need some time and investment. You can't, just, you can't just say one day, hey, I think I'll just do this. And if it's unreasonable for us to think that there are things in this life that you don't just do on a whim, then isn't it reasonable that when we think about being a disciple of Jesus... It's something more than, I'll give it a shot. It's an investment. 
It's a way of life. It's something that we are so committed to and so enamored with that we are willing to sacrifice and give up because we know the way of the cross is the way of life. We are all training for something. We're all preparing for something. Challenge the call of the cross is to hear Jesus' words and to commit ourselves to wanting to be disciples. By denying ourselves taking up our cross, following Him, believing that the way of the cross is indeed the way of life. Heavenly Father, thank You for the blessings of Your Spirit, all that You want to do in our lives. Forgive us that we are so often more about trying than training. Open our hearts. Help us to see you. And to find in discipleship abundant life. Amen.